how many of you had assigned chores as a kid? How many of you had assigned chores as a kid? Only? Okay, all right, well, okay, most of you, okay. Uh, we did, in, in growing up in southwest Minnesota, uh, had assigned chores. One of the set assigned chores was we had a rotation uh, for handling the dishes. So uh, it was a week-by-week rotation. Uh, there are four of us in my family. Uh, so one week, one would set the table. Um, one would clear off the dishes. Uh, actually, no. The person who set the table cleared off the dishes. Um, so that was one person. One person dried the dishes, and the other person washed the dishes, and the other kid got a week off. So it always rotated. Uh, and until uh, my brother got old enough to do it, who was the youngest, it was the three of us going, setting table, clearing off table, washing and drying. And we were so rejoicing when he got old enough to do all of the chores that we got a week off from doing those responsibilities. And the chore schedule actually was a good thing, even though I hated washing dishes because we washed them by hand. And I often grumbled that I would really like to have a w- dishwasher uh, to just do the dishes for me and just have me just do a few of them. And uh, one time we did get one given to us, and we rejoiced greatly because we had a dishwasher in our house, and we didn't have to worry about doing all the dishes by hand. Uh, But the chore schedule that we did have, and there were other chores that were given to us, as I'm sure there were for you growing up, uh, was so that we could practice responsibility over certain areas of life, Uh, and whether it be making our beds, whether it be through um, washing dishes, whether it be through cleaning up the yard, whatever. Uh, tasks we were assigned that were assigned not to make us miserable, although at times it felt like it. Uh, they were assigned to help us practice responsibility. Uh, and I can tell you now, some 30, almost 30 years later, um, that was a good thing uh, for me uh, growing up. Well, this morning, uh, as I'm sure as you were reading through these verses along with me, you see some responsibilities. Uh, that the author of Hebrews lists out for us this morning. And, and my proposition to this morning from this text is that you and I need to fulfill our responsibilities in our race of faith. You know, last week we had talked about some uh, jobs that we had to do to make sure we're staying in the race. Uh, and I want us to look over these responsibilities that we have as we continue to run our race of faith. You say, Pastor, what are these responsibilities? Well, I've got six of them for you this morning, and don't worry, we'll pace ourselves. I won't labor over each one and spend hours over each one, but we'll pace ourselves. We have six responsibilities this morning uh, that the author of Hebrews and God himself wants us to fulfill. First one is from verse 7, is that we copy our spiritual leaders. Verse 7, remember those who are rule over you have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of of their, uh, considering the outcome of their conduct. Okay, so we copy our spiritual leaders. And the author of Hebrews wants us to remember we must not forget those who lead us spiritually. The word remember here means to, to think of, keep in mind. Uh, it's an imperative. It implies and commands attention and obedience. And the grammar here shows a plural it means it's a responsibility for all of us to remember our spiritual leaders, those who have been put in leadership over us spiritually. But he knows how he identifies them. He says, those who rule over you. That word means to be in a supervisory capacity, to lead or to guide. 
And the grammar shows responsibility. So, in other words, another way we could say it is remember those who themselves are ruling over you, supervising you. Some of you are supervisors in this room. I've been a supervisor uh, in, in my career, uh, working at times. What does the supervisor do? He, he watches over certain areas that he's assigned to make sure those areas are functioning and functioning well. Now, there, there needs to be a description of who these people are. Uh, some denominations see this as a, a general description of spiritual leaders, no matter uh, what part of the country they may be in or what part of the world. I think the context of Hebrews limits that leadership to those in the local church because this book is specifically written to believers and the scriptures themselves really identify and highlight the authority of the local church and limits it to its own leaders. We can look at the various books that Paul wrote. He wrote them to specific people, yes, but he wrote them to specific churches and to their leaders. And so scripture consistently points out that the leadership in the church a pastor especially, has spiritual authority. And I think that's who these uh, people are. Another phrase that highlights that this is local church leadership is that the, the phrase, those who have spoken the word of God to you. It limits the identification as, of the leaders to those who speak the word uh, to, to the church. And as well, it reminds us of the, what makes someone a spiritual leader. What, what makes somebody a spiritual leader? It's someone who speaks the Word of God. It's not someone who has a position. Not someone who is elected. It's someone who's spoken the Word of God to you. So to sum it all up, the spiritual leaders that God has put in our lives via the local church are worth remembering because of their ministry to us. And we can reflect on the, in this church especially, you can reflect on times that God has put spiritual leaders through this church in your life that have impacted you, have spoken the Word to you, and have ministered to you effectively. And so the, the author is reminding us to not forget them who lead us spiritually. But also, also, secondly, how we do not forget them comes from the, our imitation of their faith. Notice he continues on, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their, contact, uh, of their conduct. Um, I'm using a New King James here. You may be using a King James. Others use different translations. Uh, I, I, I really would like that phrase to be a little bit more clear. I don't think it's as clear in the, in the New King James and the King James uh, because the word follow is an imperative. So remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, follow their faith is how we should better say that. Follow their faith. It, the word follow here means to use as a model or a pattern. Anybody ever grow up building models when you were a kid? A few of you? Okay. I, I had a few of the, I don't know if you remember the, the model airplanes like from the World War II. I was given several of those. And they came in the box. The box had the different plastics in it, and you were supposed to glue it all together. I never did that. I didn't have enough patience to. Um, but each model that I had came with a plan, and I'm, as well as you who built models. They come with a plan, right? And you're supposed to follow the plan in order to make the model work. Again, I didn't have enough patience for that. I just admired them from afar. But if you built models, you know that you had to put a piece in a certain position in order for it to work. And, it, and ideally what would happen is when you completed the model, it should have looked like the box, and most oftentimes for us, it didn't because we forgot to put one piece here and then put another piece there. 
Uh, and so it wasn't the pattern that was on the plan. It was supposed to be, but it didn't work out. Well, that's the idea of the word follow. It's to imitate. It's to model. It's to make sure that it follows the pattern. So the example here is using the lives of those who are speaking the word to us as believers as a model to follow. We're to follow that model. And how are, we supposed to do, how are we supposed to do that? We're considering the outcome of their conduct. So we're following their faith with the ultimate goal of considering, okay, what does that faith look like in real life? Right? The word considering means to give thoughtfulness to, to, to consider. And the emphasis here is on spiritual things. The outcome is the condition or the state in which the faith comes out in. The conduct means the behavior expressed according to certain principles or way of life. In this case, faith in Christ is the principle of which life is conducted. So we're supposed to pattern our lives after the spiritual leaders who, by faith, are working out the life of Christ in their life. Maybe I can say it this way. What we as believers imitate is the lives of our spiritual leaders as, who have been actively practicing their faith. The results of their faith are what we exemplify or model our life after. Okay? This does not mean we need to live like they do. An illustration like this is back in the Middle Ages. Um, there was a bunch, uh, uh, there was a movement, a pietistic movement. Perhaps if you know your history, you know this. Where people would leave their lives and go live solitary uh, lives, of, lives of solitude. They would follow certain people and, and they would attempt, I think there was several who attempted to live in certain places for certain periods of time and and they made disciples of this, and they, and they kept living in solitude. And, and what were they doing? They were, these people were exemplifying the lives of those they were trying to emulate. They would do the same things. They would live in the same area. There was one guy who lived for X number of years on top of a pole. And his disciple beat him by, I think, several years after that. That was, that was the mindset like that. You need to follow a person's life down the exact detail of what they do. That's not what's emphasized here. We don't live like they do, yet we strive to implement their practice of faith in our own circumstances. So you can think of people who have been spiritual leaders in your life through this church and through other churches that you've been involved with. Your goal is not to make sure your life matches up with theirs or with mine. Your goal is to make sure that the practice of their faith is what you model your life after. The end result, if you will, is what you strive for, is what I strive for in daily life. That's what it means to remember the leaders who rule over you. So I'm going to ask you a question this morning. Are you willing to imitate the faith of the spiritual leaders of this church? There's more than just me here this morning. Yes, I'm the pastor. Yes, I have the opportunity to be a spiritual leader in that sense. But there are other spiritual leaders in this church who, who, who have taken up over time the, the mantle of teaching and speaking the Word of God to you in different formats? Are you willing to imitate our outcome of faith? Not our lives itself, but the faith that we have strived to show you through our practical ways. There are too many Christians today who walk into a church to listen to a good sermon and then leave and just nothing changes about them. They don't have or don't strive to follow a particular model to work out their faith. They're just satisfied to sit in a pew on a Sunday morning, listen to a sermon, sing some songs, and go home unchanged, having no impact on their faith. 
That's not to be you and I. We're to remember those who, who lead us spiritually and to emulate, to impact, to model our lives after their results of their faith. How are they working their faith out in their particular circumstance? When they're struggling with finances, when they're struggling with health, what does their faith look like? That's what I want my life to be look like, to look like. Maybe, maybe an illustration would be helpful here. Um, I've, I've, I've had the opportunity to be involved in several churches uh, over my lifetime. Obviously, my, my chief inspiration, if you will, my chief example to follow is my dad. Growing up, he was my pastor for, for many years. But there's another man that I look up to as a spiritual leader, even though I'm not involved in the church anymore. Um, pastor Dan Troutman of Heritage Baptist Church from Flemington, New Jersey. I've, I may have mentioned him before. I had the opportunity to sit underneath his ministry for four and a half years. And what I saw in his life as he preached the word, as, as I learned from him, as a, he was my mentor for that time and still is to some degree, as I learned and looked at the outcome of his faith. And that is what I strive to implement in my own ministry today. That, that's a man that I, that who, held, who spoke the word of God to me, who, whose outcome was the exercise of their own personal faith. And perhaps you can think of people in your life that, that have modeled faith to you, who have been a spiritual leader to you in this church and other churches. Emulate their faith. Imitate their faith as we remember them this morning. Second responsibility that you and I have is that we are grounded in Christ. Verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, it must, I must confess to you, I mentioned this last week in our afternoon service, it's, it's kind of weird that the author of Hebrews puts this statement in the midst of talking about responsibilities, right? I mean, he says, it just seems out of place. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes, it's true. Yes, it's real. But why does it function in this way? Or how does it function in this way? I think it functions in this way by saying, by reminding us that our stability comes from an unchanging Christ. That word the same means to refer to something identical or closely related. So the idea behind the word is to show consistency regardless of the passing of time or circumstances. Now there's a couple, way you could see, a couple ways you could see this verse. You could see verse 8 as supporting verse 7. Okay, Because of our leaders and, and emulating their faith, the outcome of their faith, the ultimate example is Christ. Or it's the basis of verse 9. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. I'm going to lead towards it being the basis for verse 9 because it focuses on the consistency of Christ who does not change rather than the strange and different doctrines that arise from men's minds from time to time. Christ is consistent. Men are not. And so we need to stick with him. We sang it this morning, and, and, and Jesus never changes and that truth alone must dissuade any change from the truth in us. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he's the one we hold to. Nothing else. I don't know about you, but are you thankful that Jesus is the same? That he doesn't change? That, he's, that, he, that regardless of the passing of time, regardless of what happens in our world, he is always the same. And that is who we hold on to. Not this church, not this pastor, not, this, not the deacons, 
not anyone else. We hold on to Christ because He is unchanging. And so, being grounded in Christ, therefore, avoids foreign and dangerous teachings. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, he says. That phrase, do not be carried about, means to, to take something away from a position. And the negative in front of the verb, including the grammar, points to, to a position of not letting oneself be carried away by the strange doctrines and practices that arise. It's the anchor on a boat, right? Why do you have an anchor on a boat? So you don't drift. So you don't move from one position to another. You stay in the same spot. That's why you cast the anchor. We saw this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. Why are we, why are we uh, being taught the Word so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes? Our anchor is Christ, and that helps us avoid being carried away by different and strange. What does the word strange mean? It means to be unfamiliar. We know something, and something comes along that's totally opposite of what we know. That's strange. So the, uh, the author of Hebrews is saying being grounded in Christ helps us avoid the strange, the foreign teachings that come that are, are not in, a, in accordance with God's Word. That's how we practice responsibility. That's how we fulfill our responsibilities. We're grounded in Christ so that when the, the strange doctrines, the different doctrines, the different teachings that come along, that's the word doctrines there, that are totally opposite of the Bible and what God says in His Word, we can know that it doesn't matter up. And so we're going to choose to go with Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Notice also that being grounded in Christ points to a third reality and that grace is our foundation, not ritual. Notice he says, Therefore it is good that the heart be established by grace not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Grace is our foundation, not ritual. He says it is good that the heart was the heart. The heart refers to the whole being of a person. It makes you, you. Your whole being is grounded in Christ and is established by grace. The word established means to make something firm. And it is the grace of God that makes us firm. The unmerited favor of God. And this is a good thing. And he contrasts it to the word foods. And I think he's using that word as a general description of the rituals done in the Old Testament to please God. We read about them a little bit this morning. Those things which God described in the law were designed to please Him, right? That's why you had sacrifices. That's why you had feast days. That's why you had different rituals to go through. This was how you please God in the Old Testament, but now it's grace, not ritual, not dressing a certain way or having a certain food to eat. Because those who, who do that engage in unprofitable things. It doesn't benefit them. And he, and he may be referring to the Jews who are still holding to those rituals. Nonetheless, what is the author doing? He's showing by using that word profitable in the negative to show that rituals do not assist the heart in any way. Only grace does. It's no longer about keeping the law, right? It's no longer about doing this thing or that thing to please God. 
It is the unmerited favor of God that establishes our heart in Christ Jesus. So let me ask you a question as well. Are you relying on grace or ritual in your race of faith? Are you relying on grace, the unmerited favor of God in your life, or are you relying on ritual? Are you relying on the fact that you carry a Bible to church every morning when services are here? Are you relying on the fact that you wear a suit coat? Which, by the way, mine's a little warm. I might take it off here in a minute. <laughs> are you relying on a tie? Are you relying on certain things that you do to, to worship God as the way of being established in your faith? I'm telling you right now, it doesn't work. No, no action that you do, no words that you speak, no particular method that you employ will earn you any other extra grace in God's eyes. It is by grace alone that your race and your faith is established. Your heart relies not on, not on the externals. It should rely on the grace of God. There are too many Christians today, again, who are relying on the fact that they carry a Bible or they wear a tie or they're, they're doing this thing or that thing. They're involved in this ministry. or that. That's how they're pleasing God. That's how they're making sure that they're right with God. Folks, it doesn't work that way. It is by grace alone that you and I are justified before God. By faith alone in Christ alone. And grace is what makes our hearts established in Christ, not works. And isn't that how we're saved? For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of works. It is the gift of God, not of man, lest any man should boast. It's all about grace. And the author of Hebrews reinforces as we run our race of faith, it is on grace alone that we are running. That our hearts, our whole being is established in grace. It's our foundation through Christ, not ritual. Rely on His grace, not on your works. Third responsibility is that we embrace Christ, Christ's shame. Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. The author is saying here is that Christ, through his shame, introduced a new worship system. We have, as present tense, is showing the current mode of, of worship. And I think what he's doing here is when he says we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, the idea here is that the, the old priesthood is no longer the place to worship Christ. We have a different way. They have no right. They have no control over that worship. Now God, through Christ, has established a new way of worship. Through Christ's shame, he introduced a new way to worship him. And then he draws the comparison here to the suffering of Christ, to the suffering of the sacrificial animals in the Old Testament, so saying, therefore, Christ is our sacrifice, suffered shamefully. Once offered on the sacrificial altar, those, the carcasses of those animals were carried outside the tabernacle and burned. They had, they had fulfilled their use. There was no reason to keep them. So basically, they loaded them up on a cart, took them outside, the camp and burned them. And in the same way, Christ was offered outside the camp for the sins 
of the whole world. He did this to set apart a people for himself through his sacrifice and suffer purposefully. Christ, we looked at this earlier in our study in Hebrews. He goes through the same things that the sacrificial animals went through only to, to eventually perfect it. And here he highlights the suffering of Christ that he suffered outside the gate, outside the camp, so that you and I might be perfect, might be set apart for his use. And therefore, because of that sacrifice, because of what he did, suffering outside the camp, we ourselves are to embrace his disgrace, his suffering as our own. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Here's the conclusion of, of the, that brief discussion, verses 10 through 12. Let us go forth as an encouragement to an action to him. Not just randomly, but to him. To show the, it's showing the goal of going outside the Christ. We're going to Christ. He is suffering outside the camp. His suffering was different than the Old Testament. It was designed to bring about the completion of our salvation. And in going outside the camp to him, as he pick, draws that picture for us, we are bearing his reproach. What's that word, bearing his reproach? It means to carry a burden. And the burden is the act of disgrace. The act of shame. You remember the, the, the crucifixion story we celebrated Easter about a month ago. That Christ was considered to be condemned and underneath disgrace as He suffered shamefully on the cross. And since Christ was considered to have been justly condemned by God and therefore a disgrace through His sacrifice on the, on the cross, so you and I as believers are to bear that shame by identifying with him. I, I kind of illustrate it through um, wearing team colors. Okay? Why do people wear team colors today, whether it be in the store or at a game or just out and about? Why do they do that? Because they want you to know what team they identify with. I identify with the right one, the Green Bay Packers. You guys identify with the wrong ones, the Minnesota Vikings. Okay? No, I'm just kidding. Um, you wear those colors because you want to know, people know, hey, this is, this is the team I cheer, cheer for. This is the team I want to win. This is the team that, unfortunately for Minnesota fans, fails me more times than often. Uh, the Wild played last week, and I was so angry at them. I'm a Wild fan. I just, just Anyway, don't get me started. Um, you identify with that team. You want people to know that through the jersey that you're wearing or the number that you carry, through the colors. And people identify that reality with you. So let's wear the, in sports terms, let's wear the colors of Christ. Let's identify with Him in our daily lives because we are to bear His reproach, His disgrace. The shame of the cross is to be our shame. We're to willingly identify with that. Not like in, the, in the, the Middle Ages where carrying a cross, and even today, we're carrying a cross as a symbol of, uh, of good luck, of favor. No, carrying the cross back in Bible times meant you were condemned. That you would suffer horribly. And that attitude is to be ours, that we carry uh, 
in our own identity. We identify with Christ, willing to embrace shame and disgrace as he did. Not very popular today in our American Christianity, but yet we are called to do it. And this attitude, also notice, is enabled by our eternal perspective. Look at verse 14. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. The word continuing here means lasting or abiding. The idea of a city that points to a place of belonging. We're seek, seeking this means to be seriously interested in or have a strong desire for the city that is to come. The word to come points to the future. We, we saw this in, in our looking at Hebrews chapter 11. Looking at the faith of Abraham and the, and the patriarchs. Listen to verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had been called to mind of the country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's our perspective. God has something better in the future for us, so we willingly embrace the shame of Christ. We willingly suffer for His name, knowing that something better is coming and it's worth waiting for. So are you identifying with Christ in your daily life? Listen to what Peter says to his readers in 1 Peter 4.14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Paul says in in other portions of Scripture, those who are godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Are you identifying with Christ in your daily life? Do people look at your life and see Christ? Not in an arrogant fashion or a... that comes from pride, but in humility, willing to embrace the shame and disgrace that comes with bearing His name. Again, too many Christians today don't want that. They're, they're, they're Christians in name only. They don't want the shame. They don't want disgrace. They don't want to be known as a cool Christian or a positive Christian. No, they, they, I'm a Christian in name only, and that's it. They're not willing to go through identifying with Him, living as He did, following the teachings of Christ. They just want to be known as Christians only. There's no change. But that's not the attitude we're supposed to have. If we're going to run our race of faith, if we're going to keep going, we're going to fulfill these responsibilities, one of them is identify with Christ. Go outside the camp. Go out to a place of suffering and shame because something better is coming down the road and that's worth waiting for. That's worth going through the shame and the suffering. So are you willing to identify with Christ? Or are you willing just to say, no, I'm, I'm okay, Pastor. I'm just a Christian by name. I didn't... I don't have to worry about everything else. I'm, I'm okay. Well, that's not a responsibility. That's not uh, something you and I are to do in the race of faith. That's not that's being irresponsible as we run the race. Fourthly, we continually praise God in our, as another responsibility in this race of faith. This is enabled by what Christ has done for us. Notice he says, verse 15, Therefore, by Him... 
The word therefore shows the ability to praise God as we should comes from Christ. And if that isn't proof enough, the author of Hebrews adds the term by him to show our praise, how our praise is given to God is through Christ alone. You and I would generally want to praise God. I hope this morning it's only done through Christ. It's only done by praising His name, uplifting His name and for all to see. And notice he says our praise must not stop. Let's continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. The word offer up means to offer a sacrifice. We can again go back to the Old Testament. How are sacrifices offered? They were given out of one's own resources for sin or for, for blessing, uh, to bless God or to be used by God. They were given out of one's own personal resources so that God could use it. And we're offering up the praise. We're sacrificing the praise. We're reserving it for God rather than for other things. And we're to do it continually. The word continually here has the idea of, of all the time and in every circumstance, regardless of what happens. And we give it to God. And it comes as the fruit of our lips. It's, it's given through our verbal expressions. It's not silent praise. It's not thought praise. It's verbal praise. And we continually need to give it all the time, regardless of what happens. It also includes thanksgiving to God. And in some commentaries, as you look at this term, giving thanks, they, they, they put it as synonymous with praise. I think they're right. I don't think the author of Hebrews is making a separate category here because the word giving thanks means to agree with something that is factually true. Okay, so, so praise and giving thanks to God is what we are doing when we praise Him. We're agreeing with God that He has given us things. He has, he has uh, blessed us in so many ways. We're, we're not praising a random deity. We're offering specific praise to the one true God reveals, whose name reveals all who He is. We give thanks to His name. That's what you and I did this morning when we were singing in our songs and what we're doing now as we're listening to the preaching and teaching of His Word. We're, we're praising God. We're giving thanks to His name, to what He's done for us and who He is. And we're to do it continually. So will you continually praise God in every circumstance? I mean, it's really easy this morning to come on a Sunday morning and, and things are going well and to, to offer praise to God for the good week that we've had. But it's equally as hard to praise God for the poor week that we've had. We like to praise God for the good things, but not the bad things. And the author of Hebrews mentions continual offering of praise. So whether you've had a good week, whether you've had a, the best week in the world, or whether you've had the, the, the awful, terrible, no good, very bad day week, we're still to praise Him. Regardless of what happens. So as you run the race of faith, will you make it the goal to continually praise God? Two more. Two more responsibilities. Fifthly, we practice our faith. Verse 16, but do not forget to do good and to share with such, with such sacrifices God is well pleased. In practicing our faith, we remember to do what is good. Again, don't forget. Don't, don't, don't uh, leave it out of your memory. The word do good here refers to a rendering of service. It, doing things with the implication of being generally recognizable as laudable. We could use the term good deeds. 
Okay? Don't forget to do good things. We're to be actively engaged in doing what is good both in the sight of God and men. And again, let me just pause for a minute. A lot of Christians are not too good at doing this. They're okay with being Christians in word, but when it comes to works, mm, leave me out. Let somebody else do it. The author of don't forget to do good. Don't forget to do the right thing. And don't forget to share. The word share here means a, an attitude of goodwill that manifests an interest in a close relationship. The whole family of words surrounding that word in the original language means to, to emphasize this fellowship. It's showing good intentions towards someone through the sharing of resources. We do not neglect to manifest goodwill to our friends, neighbors, and strangers through sharing. Paul emphasizes this in Romans chapter 12, verse 13. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We're, we're to share, we're to, to, to use our resources out of, uh, out of a desire to show goodwill to everyone we come in, in contact with. And when we practice these things, when we do good and we share, we please God. Here's the results of, of that work. For, the word for there, you can see at the end of verse 16, provides the results of practicing our faith. God is well-pleased. The word well-pleased here means to experience pleasure, take delight in. Think of your favorite food. Um, I've got several. Um, my wife makes great, great, uh, great food, and, and one thing that she has done very well is practiced on me. She has made these conglomerations that turned out very good, and it's, just, it's one of some of my favorite food. But one of the favorite foods I had growing up was, um, you probably don't like it, but that's fine, is uh, sauerkraut, pork and sauerkraut. Okay, some of you are disgusted, some of you are uh, rejoicing. Um, but it, it's by mom's sauerkraut, which is different than the stuff you buy in the store, so it's better. Um, but what, what you do is you stick it in a crock pot with a sauerkraut, and what happens is you cook it over time as the sauerkraut seeps into the pork and just makes it so juicy and good and tender. My mouth is watering right now because it's really good. My wife is not totally thrilled with it, and that's fine. But I love it, okay? And that makes me uh, savor, and, and, and I take pleasure in that. Uh, enjoy that. You can think of whatever favorite food you have. But the idea is God is pleased when we share our faith, when we practice our faith. And I hope, brothers and sisters, we never get to the point where we feel like what we do for God doesn't matter. It does. When we do good, when we share, God is pleased. It does matter what we do. So let's keep doing it. Are, we, are, are you and I willing, by, by way of, of application, practicing our faith? Are we doing good? Are we doing what God says? Both personally, both relationally, in our jobs, whatever category you can list, are we practicing our faith? Or are we just kind of closet Christians? We just kind of, yeah, we, we'll do good once in a while. We'll, 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 we'll contribute once in a while where we can. That's not what the Scripture says. We remember to do good. We remember to share. And we do it consistently. We practice our faith. Last one. Last responsibility. We obey our spiritual leaders. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. 
We obey and submit to spiritual leaders in the church. The word obey has the idea of to follow. And it has the idea also it implies that there's someone in a leadership position to follow. And it's an imperative. You know, we're supposed to obey. Those who rule over you, it's, it's the same word used in verse 7. It's the spiritual leaders of the church. They have the responsibility of spiritual leadership. And it's limited to those who have those responsibilities within the local church. But obey, it says obey those who rule over you and be submissive. What, that, what does that word mean? It means to yield to someone's authority. The spiritual authority in the local church must be yielded to and followed regardless of one's personal feelings about them. You're not following the person, right? You're following what they're teaching, what they're saying. If they're in a spiritual position of leadership, you follow them. If there's any disagreement with you, between you and that person, whether it be obviously me as a pastor, I'm a spiritual leader, there's a biblical problem you have, you're supposed to use Matthew 18, right? You come to that person personally, you work it out. But if it's just because, hey, I don't like the fact that he wears a tie, it's not too much of a reason to not follow and obey them. Regardless of, uh, of their, their hairstyle and their clothing style choices, whatever they might be, you still obey and submit to the spiritual authority in the church. And I'm not saying that as a pastor. I'm not using this verse to pound you over the head. This is what the author of Hebrews tells and God tells us to do. For those who have spiritual leadership in the church, we're to follow them, we're to obey them as they speak the word of God to us. Because they have a responsibility to God, don't they? Look, look at what he says next. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. The word watch out means to, to uh, be alertly concerned for. It implies watchfulness and attention to detail. And they do it over our souls. This is where they exercise their, their influence, their leadership. They watch out for us. They care or should care and show attention to our lives. Why? Because they have to give an account. The word account, give account here means to, to meet a contractual obligation. You ever been involved in a contract work? You know that, you, that normally when you sign the contract, there's some outlined responsibilities. This is stuff that you have to fulfill in order for you to get paid. Sports players do that today. Other, other companies make... Employees feel out contracts, so they, they know their responsibilities and they're contractually obligated to meet them. In the same way, spiritual leaders have the contractual responsibility before God to watch over the souls of those to whom, whom have, who have been entrusted to their care. I have that responsibility to watch over your souls this morning, to make sure that you're being cared for, and that you're being provided for through uh, the ministry of the church by the power of God. And I will give an account of that care to God who provides the care of a sheep, who takes the care of a sheep very seriously. Right? That's why, that's why Peter wrote 1 Peter 5. He's talking to, to pastors. He's talking to shepherds. He says, 1 Peter 5, one, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God who is among you. 
serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, but not, nor as being lords over those who are entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. I have a responsibility to shepherd you, to, to watch over you, to make sure that you are faithfully obeying the Word of God. And I have to take it seriously because God takes shepherding His flock seriously. That's my responsibility to God. And also notice that our submission and obedience to our spiritual leaders should be done in such a way that it is a joy to be held accountable for our care. The word joy here means to experience gladness. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. That word means to express oneself involuntary in the face of undesirable circumstance. Now the word can be sighing. I want you to think of the, the thing that you absolutely hate to do. You can name it in your own mind. What kind of expression comes to your mind when you think of that thing? I'm going to say it to be like, oh, oh, I got to do this now. I don't want to do it. Next, think about something you love to do. Yes, I get to do it. That's the reaction your leaders are supposed to have when they, they care for you. It's not me. Oh, I got to take, oh, that person is not listening. I don't want to do it. It should be. Oh, man, I, I, I get to watch over this person. And where does that come from? It comes from your response. It comes from your response to that leadership. If it's, it's, it's a, a, a hard-nosed response, guess what? It's not going to be pleasant for that leader to give an account. But if it's a gentle obedience and submission that, that knows that the, what that spiritual leader is doing is for your benefit, it's going to be a joyful thing to give account. And then he says, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now, in looking at this phrase, you would think that it goes with, let them do so with joy and not with grief. I think it goes with verse, part of verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for that would be unprofitable for you if you don't. Because the word unprofitable speaks to the need to obey and to submit. If we don't do it, it's not going to end well for us. Right? If we don't follow our spiritual leaders in the, in the, in the, again in the local church context and setting, it's not going to end well. Ultimately, in God's eyes, He takes that seriously. And so he, the author of Hebrews encourages his readers to submit and obey to that leadership because they give account. And it's to be done with joy, not with grief. So are you obeying and submitting to your spiritual authority in this church? Again, it's kind of awkward for me to say I'm a pastor. I have that level of spiritual authority. I'm not saying obey me and submit to me. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, are you willing to obey and submit to the spiritual authority of this church? Spiritual leaders that are here in elected positions such as mine, but in non-elected positions. Because we have the responsibility to watch out for you. And we're going to give an account of how we do that. Both personally and just over, your, over how we did the care. And we have to do it with joy. Want to do it with joy and not with grief. So are you obeying and submitting to your spiritual authority 
here at First Baptist Church. The chores we did as kids taught us to be responsible for whatever tasks we were given, and we learned the consequences of not fulfilling those responsibilities. In the same vein, we have responsibilities as believers in this race of faith that we need to fulfill. There's six of them I've listed for you this morning. We copy our spiritual leaders. We look at the outcome of their faith and we mimic that in our lives. We model our lives after that. We're grounded in Christ so that when strange and weird and awful teachings come against us, we can say, no, that's, that's not my Jesus. We embrace the shame of Christ. We're willing to go through suffering and disgrace just like He is because we are identifying with Him and we have a hope that is stronger than this world. We continually praise God no matter what comes down the pike. We practice our faith on a daily basis. We look to doing good and sharing and we obey our spiritual leaders not because they're perfect but because they have to give an account of their care and they should be doing it with joy and not with grief. So as we continue the race of faith this week, let us remember these responsibilities and let us keep fulfilling them as we see the end of the race in sight.